Welcome to Deep Drinks Podcast, where the drinks are deep and the conversations are deeper. So welcome everyone to the Deep Drinks Podcast. Today we have the awesome Arjuna from Theology Unleashed, which is a YouTube channel that tries to bridge the gap between East and West philosophy. Arjuna is a Hare Krishna, and today we're going to be learning a little bit about Hinduism, Hare Krishnaism, or how do I say it, Arjuna? Uh, the, the word Hare Krishna doesn't really have that many word forms, so if you want to say it in ism, you've got to say Vaishnavism or Chaitanya Vaishnavism or something. Vaishnavism. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm bad at pronunciation, but we're going to be learning a little bit about that and a bit about um, Arjuna's journey, and then we'll end with the Q and A. So, um, yeah, welcome, Arjuna. Yeah, great to be here. <laughs> no, and uh, we're drink. What are we drinking today? So all, all the guests choose their own drink, and and uh, Arjuna, what have you chosen? Yeah, <laughs> some cola kombucha. Yeah. So, as Harry Christians, we don't drink any alcohol or coffee. So. This drink is quite popular among devotees at the moment because it's it's healthy and it tastes yeah. good. So and and my family eats quite healthy too. There's another one that's quite popular among Harry Krishnas is ginger beer, Bundaberg. Ah, yeah. But it's oh, full of sugar. I can't drink that stuff. And uh this stuff it's fermented, so the sugar's broken down. It's got sugar alcohols. It's not alcoholic though. Yeah. Unless you yeah, ferment cool. it too much. Yeah. So I mean, and you wouldn't do that. Um, this, yeah, it's, maybe um, maybe this is the healthiest beverage you've had on your show yet. Probably, I think. Um, yeah, I think the the only non-alcoholic one we had was uh, Dr Pepper. So, um, <laughs> anyway, right. and that's as as. Um, anyway, um, I'll let's try some of this delicious beverage. I do it's like probiotic. Yeah, is it actually probiotic still? Um, yeah, it has some probiotic qualities. Yeah, cool. Um, that's all the rage at the moment, like gut health and stuff like that. Oh yeah, that's good. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, um, nice. So before we like, I've tried to in preparation for this um, interview, I listened to just the the bulk, the text, not the commentary of Bhagavad Gita as it is, which of course is the um, which is the uh, Krishna uh, Hare Krishna text um, or the, the text you told me to read. This one, yeah. Um, and obviously, I, I just skimmed skimmed it, listened to it, listened to an audio version, and I also listened to. Um, a, a short introduction to Hinduism, and I feel like I'm I'm worse off than what I was when, <laughs> to begin with. <laughs> so I thought maybe you could give, um, and I, th- I thought a really good place to start would be if you gave a uh, just a, an overview of the differences between West thought and Eastern thought, because I, I remember having having a having a beer with a with a Christian friend of mine once, and um, and uh, I was I was bringing some some issues up with what I saw with uh, Christianity. And he was saying, oh, well, you're, you're assuming everything from Greek thought, from, you know, logic and, and things like that. And I was like, and I never thought about my presupposition of how like the West and Western way of thinking is kind of like persuaded me to go a certain, like look at things a certain way. So I'd be really interested to, interested to hear how, what the difference is. Who are you speaking to that said that? Um, one of my Christian friends. It was years ago. Yeah. Oh, right. Because Christianity is heavily influenced by Greek philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, yeah. I, to be honest, I don't think this person um, was well versed. I, I think he was just trying to find an out to some of my, um, right. <laughs> my, my, uh, it, my questions. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a fair point. Just 
Uh, it's interesting coming from a Christian saying that about Greek <laughs> yeah. philosophy. Actually, now, now think about that. Yeah, because the New Testament was written in Greek, so I don't know what he was even talking about. Maybe. He's yeah, like, like, I mean, I've pressed Christians on that before because it's like in the Eastern traditions and, and with the Vedas, we have a complete revelation. It's basically that you've got two different separate traditions that have created entire uh, entire world religions that have become popular. There's the East and there's the Middle East, like the Abrahamic traditions and then India, and they're fully independent. But the difference with Christianity is it's, it's you know, Jesus gave a little bit and then the early church fathers borrowed a lot from the Greeks. So if I've pressed Christians on that before and said, oh, we, we've got a more full, more complete revelation. And they say, oh, God planned it in such a way that, that he planted this stuff there from the Greeks in order for us to take advantage with it. That That's how they respond to that thing. So they're off topic, but it's just, I thought of it, so I said it. So, yeah. um, crash course in, in Hinduism, or, or and how it differs from the West. So, uh, one thing I've found interesting for a long time, and finally have an answer I'm satisfied with, is why in India do they never talk about the problem of evil? So the debates have been about all sorts of things, and there's some debates that cross over, like the debate over classical theism versus neoclassical theism or whatever the competing views of God are, seem to be somewhat similar to the debates of Advaita Vedanta versus um, Vaishishtadvaita or Tapha. so the dualism versus the non-dualism. Mm. Uh, Is that con- consciousness, right? Like consciousness model? Uh, it's, it's, it's framed a little differently in the East. So, yeah, in the West, it it's goes back to Descartes and it's consciousness versus mm. matter, God versus matter. Uh, whereas in Eastern traditions, uh, they talk about, oh, I heard someone saying it. So they, I listen to these talkers that have real clarity on it and then I, I don't um, write it down and or you know speak on it myself so much so I forget, but it's something like the, someone was saying that there's, I can point to Ashish Jalela. I'm actually going to have him on my channel soon. He, he's a Hare Krishna who's written, written extensively and has studied Western philosophy affair, but maybe you can interview him next. And he was saying in the, the Eastern one, they get it in reverse. So um, I can't remember how that works. So, but, so the, they talk about Maya, so the material world as an illusion. Uh, and the real thing is that this is the Advaita Vada is a, that there is um, the ultimate reality has no quality. So that's the, the non-dualism. Everything's one. And the reason why we get this think that there's a variety of things in the world is because of an illusion. It's, it's just a false perception of reality. Uh, but really there's just oneness and uh, undifferentiatedness. Uh, so that creates the problem of, of how do you get this illusion? If, if there's nothing, if reality is undifferentiated, then where do all these qualities come from? Uh, and then and whereas the Vaishnavas who's cl- who claim that the ultimate reality is personal, they would say, the ultimate reality is full of qualities and that's how we have qualities in this world. But the reason why things in this world are, because in, in the, the the Western traditions, they didn't want to go that route because if you, if you want to say the material world is connected to God in this way, then how is it connected to God when it's profane and God is totally pure? Uh, and uh, the Eastern traditions also want to have, want to keep that distance of God being pure uh, despite the world having impurities. But the way they do that is, is uh, the one analogy used is to the sun. So the sun 
can create a reflection on the pond. Um, and you can destroy the reflection on the pond, but you can't destroy the sun. Uh, okay. And so in this way, God can reach into the world and be present in the world, uh, but not be affected by the world. Mm. Um, these are the sort of debates that went on. Uh, so it's somewhat similar to the debates you get uh, between with classical theism and uh, neoclassical theism and somewhat where they're debating as God because the classical theism idea is, you know, God's impassable. He doesn't, he, he's got his, he's untouched. He doesn't have, mo, mo, react to us at all. He doesn't interact with the world. And that's trying to preserve God being pure and not interacting with this profane world. But you run into problems because anyway, that's another debate, but it, it seems to be quite similar to this impersonalism debate, but you never got the problem of evil because uh, there was this implicit idea of, um, cyclical creations, uh, long time spans, reincarnation, having lived before, and us being held accountable for our past actions. So we don't have a problem of evil because there's just this uh, implicit personal responsibility. Interesting. So how would that... Yeah, right. So when someone does something that's evil or something evil happens to someone, like let's say there's a, a landslide and it kills a bunch of like innocent babies at an orphanage who are crying with their little puppies and kittens, what would the Eastern perspective be on that? Because I know a lot of people in the West would say, the Western perspective might say, um, why would God let this happen? Um, uh, you know, is this the devil's work or something like that? Or maybe this is judgment for sin. What's the Eastern perspective on that? Yeah, I mean, so broadly. Yeah, so the the way a Vaishnava would deal with that is one to say that, that this world isn't meant for enjoyment. The purpose of this world is to rectify our rebellious mentality, purify us and develop our love of God. And uh th there's an analogy Parapad who's the founder of the Hare Krishna movement in the West, he wrote the the book the Bhagavad Gita which you just held up. He wrote the commentary and translation. Uh, he gives this analogy that uh, there's first-class intelligence, second-class intelligence, third-class intelligence, and 10th-class intelligence. And uh, most people are not that intelligent. So first-class intelligence, you tell them once, don't put your hand in the fire, you'll get burnt. The child hears this, listens, and never gets burnt. Second-class intelligence, they hear, they watch another child get burnt, and they never get burnt themselves. Third-class intelligence, they hear, they see somebody else do it, they do it themselves, they get burnt, and then they never do it again. And 10th-class intelligence repeatedly gets burnt and still does it again. Okay, so like someone who's maybe like a drug addict or something, maybe someone you'd classify as 10th, 10th intelligence, right? Yeah, but even, even someone who's unintelligent, given enough time, they'll eventually learn. Uh, and mm. this comes back to this whole being ultimately good and and oriented towards the good but we we so sooner or later we we're you know the the, the it's it's kind of like how you could an analogy i i like to use is um drills right like if you're just like a home diy guy you might go to the store and buy the cheapest drill you might use it a couple of times and just tolerate how bad it is to use but if you get your drill out and use it much eventually you're going to get sick of it and you're going to go to the store and buy a quality drill and among people who are tradesmen that use their drill every day you won't find a single person who has the cheapest drill at the shop. And nobody's forcing them to do that. It's just objectively a better choice. So similarly, sooner or later, we're all going to make the better choice and turn to God. Uh, so coming back to the, the natural disaster thing. Uh, so people from have a mentality that they've carried with them from a past life. That mentality led them to, to 
do certain actions in their past life and those actions bring certain reactions, they still have that mentality and the reactions that that mentality earns them are the exact thing that are needed to rectify that mentality. Mm-hmm. So, and then I should probably quickly respond to some objections because I know the objections that typically come up here, uh, <laughs> which is, you know, you could use this kind of philosophy to say, oh, so if a child's starving, that's their karma. That's what they need uh, to experience to learn and grow. So that means if I feed that child, I'm interrupting their karma. Uh, but this is crossing thing, crossing the philosophy because there's there's ways of applying the, there's certain philosophical things which are for understanding my own situation how i look at myself and the situation i'm in and there's other philosophical points of how i look at other people so right now what we're doing is philosophy where we just sit back and look at the reasons for things but what you do when there's a starving child in front of you is 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 not the same thing you do when you're trying to explain why a child is in that situation and that that comes down to the dharma is ought it's kind of like an is ought gap um, well, an analogy I've often used for it is, is like, and there's a, there's a big focus on, on guru and Eastern traditions and like an unbroken guru disciple relationship. The guru is the representative of God and you get instruction from them that it's, it's important not to see the guru as an ordinary person. And, uh, and this way you can, uh, get the teachings correctly. But if the guru sees himself as connected to God in the same way the disciple is supposed to see, then the guru is fallen. The guru is supposed to see themselves as a servant. So there's a w- certain way that disciples supposed to look at the guru, and there's a completely different way that the guru is supposed to look at himself. Okay, as, as that kind of thing. So how you know if I if something bad happens to me, how I look at my situation is very different from how if that bad thing happens to somebody else who I'm able to help. Because uh, then dharma comes in, and dharma one way it can be translated as duties. So. I, I, if I can relieve someone else's suffering, I have a duty to do that. And if, uh, if it's their karma to not have their suffering alleviated, then I won't be able to alleviate the suffering no matter how much I try. I mean, there are some caveats to that. You, you don't do over endeavor. So like, yeah. In, yeah. in this version of the Gita, which is the first one I read, um, have you read this version? No, it's, um, it's, uh, do you know much about Christianity? A little bit. Have you? Do you know what the message translation of the Bible is? No. It's like it's not even considered a translation, and I described this as it's not. It, it probably is a, a good translation, but it's just so easy to read. Like in regards to like, it's probably less faithful. Um, but when when I read it, I really understood. It. And one of the things, one of the parts of the commentary that it said was the uh, Dharma. Uh, and I'm wanting to see if you agree with this, with your understanding, is the Dharma of a scorpion is to sting. So yeah. like that's it's like that's like it's it's uh it's it's not it's that's not like a bad thing for the scorpion to do that's what it's there to do to sting right yeah yeah Look, so I'm, that applies to I'm, animals so like a, a tiger is gonna eat other if, if a tiger eats a deer it's not creating karma for itself animals don't earn karma but humans earn okay. karma because we're capable of deliberating on our actions and making decisions Animals do, are just acting out of natural instincts. Do you accept the theory of evolution by natural selection that we've we came from descendant animals, like that we are animals, essentially? Uh, no. 
No, I don't think there's good scientific evidence for it, and I don't think it's consistent with Bhagavatam. Okay, cool. Um, I'm not going to like start like drilling on that <laughs> or anything, but I was just interested because obviously, um, obviously, what you said there's like uh, from some perspective, in the scientific perspective, we are you know we're mammals or animals or or whatever. Um, well, maybe we could jump onto what is Hinduism because like obviously, like Hinduism is old, right? And there is some cont- is there some con- uh, con- like contention around the dates of when Hinduism started. And what's your understanding of when it started and, and what, how it started and what is Hinduism? So a lot of the academic or what passes as academic or scholarly work relating to dates for Hinduism and in the academic world is really sketchy. And the reason why there's such bad scholarship around it is because the first people to do Indology were people like Max Muller uh, and who were sent there and hired specifically to go there and try to demoralize the Indian population as part of uh, the colonization of India. Hmm. So people were studying the Indian traditions, getting paid big bucks to demoralize Indians and show how Indian culture is inferior and Western culture is superior. So they would make everything as recent as possible. For example, uh, Max Muller came up with a date that's like, I think 800 years ago for Bhagavad Gita. And he did this by, or maybe for, I think for Bhagavatam, he said 800 years ago. And he did this by looking at that because Bhagavatam is a spoken book. So it was, it's an, it's an oral history. It was told as a story and eventually it was written down. So that means it's in a very modern Sanskrit dialect. It doesn't mean the stories are at all recent. It just means that the uh, Sanskrit, which it was uh, written down in was a more modern style. And he took this and said, okay, here's the modern dialect of Sanskrit and here's the dialect of Sanskrit. It's in the most, uh, you can change dialects. The fastest that can happen is every 200 years. So let's say it happened as fast as possible. Uh, and also there's a personality with this name mentioned. And here in history, there's a personality with the same name. Must be the same person. And that's how we got his dates. And other scholars looked at it and thought, yeah, I don't think that's right. And then the next generation of scholars just totally accepted it. So uh, that's just throwing some shade on what academics have to say about it. So if you want to disagree with that in an academic realm, you've got your work cut out for you, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But as for... You know, if we're going to take the tradition a lot more seriously, what it says about itself, uh, the tradition is as old as the world is. Uh, just uh, Prabhupada gave an analogy to an owner's manual. So he was he had a microphone in front of him. He said, just like when you buy a microphone, there's an owner's manual. Along mm-hmm. with the universe comes an owner's manual, and it's Bhagavad Gita. It tells us the purpose of the world and how to get out of here. So if you if you study the history of India, there's there's strong evidence that the Vaishnava traditions go right back. Uh, and then, of course, Shaivism is pretty old too. But Shaivism is, is a, a relative of Vaishnavism. That's that they're, they they existed alongside one another. Uh, and then it was only with the advent of of Shankaracharya that you had impersonalism take prominence. Um, so yeah, we we what, 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 hold that Bhagavad Gita was was five thousand years ago. Bhagavatam five thousand years ago. Uh, okay. And there's astro. What is it? Astro. Some of the astrological descriptions that are given in Bhagavad Gita line up with astrological alignments that occurred 5,000 years ago. Plus, it's what the text claims. And there's some archaeology that you could say matches that too. So would you, um, would you say 
it's like so the bug of yeah, you know those texts are uh, um, uh, like a manual like with a microphone or so would you say that they so would you say that the earth is somewhere around five six thousand years old or would you do you have a belief <laughs> that it's older okay, so uh, so Krishna spoke Bhagavad Gita to Arjuna five thousand years ago when he spoke Bhagavad Gita to Arjuna he said uh, I appear whenever these teachings become degraded mm-hmm. they've, they've they've become degraded now. I appeared many years ago to and spoke these teachings to the sun god, which would be in the hundreds of thousands of years ago. Uh, okay. And then we've got Ramayan, which we believed happened over a billion years ago. Uh, so okay. the look at the, I think it's over a billion. The, um, the I, I've got a video on my channel. There's there's a devotee who wrote a book, that, and that's there's some scientific accuracies contained in the in the Vedic literature and the Puranas. That, that say the earth is roughly 4 billion years old that, and, and the age of the universe matches too. And he's also found uh, uh, descriptions of uh, extinction events, at least one extinction event or maybe a couple that, that line up with what we found in the archaeological record. Um, so there's some scientific you- accuracy in there. It's the, I think it's the only tradition that, that has the time scales that line up with modern uh, astronomy. Uh, okay. Would you um so the Vedas? When you say the Vedas, you talk about like the Rig Veda and what are like the whole yeah, set so, of the specific ones that. Yeah, so the Vedas are described as existing eternally. They they've okay. always existed, always will, and in their exact state. Um, so we might not ha- we might have there might be interpolations or corruptions in the text that we have now, uh, but that's just as they've appeared to us. But the texts themselves always exist, and like some of those the, those original four Vedas, there um. The, they have to be verbatim. With Bhagavatam, mm. you, you can put it into modern language and that's fine, uh, but it's got to be the exact phrasing of syllable for those other ones. Um, and then like Bhagavatam, it appears uh, every creation cycle, but it, it's stories, so there may be some variations in the stories, or it may be that, I th- yeah, I think Bhagavatam would have variation. Um, others of the Vedas, there's personalities who experience appear and it's named after them, but there's probably a different personality in the next yuga, the next time around, but it's the same name, but it's a different person, and they also are has the, the same text revealed to them. So, okay, so I'm going to throw some like common, you know, you know, ideas that I hear from like my buddies or whatever, or randoms on TV or something, where they'll say that uh, India has millions of gods or Hinduism has millions of gods. And I've heard someone else say that that's almost like a grade two understanding of like what Hinduism is. Um, so how, if someone's come up to you and said Hindu, um, Hinduism has millions of gods, um, and how would you answer someone that says that? It, do, does Hinduism have millions of gods or is it just, what is it? So there's 33 million demigods. There's a funny story and somewhere in the Mahabharata where somebody decided they wanted to find a demigod who no one was worshipping. And they did it so that they could be, you know, really pleased that one demigod. But we have to understand what a demigod is. So the, the phrase demigod is an English translation Prabhupada gave for the Sanskrit word uh, sura, or um, I think oh, what's, I think there's another Sanskrit for them. Um, so there's like Indra, he's the chief of the demigods. Brahma is the, the creator of this particular universe. This particular, I think it's actually more maps onto our solar system rather than universe. There's many Brahmas. 
uh, overseeing various different creations. And so Brahma is like an engineer overseeing creation. So God doesn't really do the work himself. He wills it to happen and it happens and he puts other people in charge of it. So the demigods are like engineers overseeing the material universe there. And they live in the heavenly planets, which is part of the material universe where there's more enjoyment, less suffering. They live longer lives. And they probably map onto the Christian idea of angels or the Muslim uh, idea. Okay. There's something in Islam that maps onto it too. I think they, they, they use the word uh, L. I think the word L means like archangel or angel or something. In yeah, and, and I'm not a scholar on this stuff, so I'll mark it a lot. But there's other devotees who've, who've done a bit of work on this. I could link to a video. Okay. So, so who's uh, Brahman, Krishna, um, Shiva? I've got a Shiva statue actually back there. I picked up in Bali. Thought it looked amazing. Um, who are they in relation to Hinduism? And then does that differ from a Hare Krishna? Uh, so... You do get what's called Neo-Vedanta, which was this invention of Vivekananda and the Ramakrishna mission. And it doesn't rep- it doesn't uh, accurately represent any of the former traditions. Um, they wanted to compete with Christianity, and uh, so they wanted to make India have one religion. And they cho- chose impersonalism of the Advaita Vedanta view to be the umbrella and then they just tried to shoehorn everything into there and say you can worship krishna you can worship kali you can worship uh, ganesh shiva whoever you like they're just something for you to fix your mind on until you're advanced enough to fix your mind on the impersonal absolute beyond these deities um and that's the like any Hare krishna or vaishnava is completely offended by that idea because you're taking things which aren't god and saying, oh, you get the same result by focusing on this thing than on that thing. Whereas for the Vaishnava, there's Vishnu Tattva. The word Tattva may be translated as ontology. It's an ontological category. So Vishnu mm-hmm. Tattva is the God category. God is a single person, uh, but he expresses a diversity of personalities and a diversity of forms. So one way I explain this is I can do what I can do across time, God can do simultaneously. So just as the court judge, they express a different personality when they're working as a judge as when they're home. There's a, a famous example where I think it was the prime minister of England at the time. Someone was waiting in his office for a while, a couple hours or something. And finally they looked through the keyhole and they saw that the prime minister was in there with the sun climbing on his back, being ridden around like a horsey. So this is a different aspect of the personality of the prime minister mm. to what's normally seen. Uh, but it's the same person. But when God expresses a different personality, he can do it with a different form. So I can take a different form across multiple lifetimes. I can take a birth in a different form, but God can do it simultaneously. And he's got He's got a lot of personality to express. So he's got a diversity of forms to fully express those and engage in loving relationships with his devotees and those forms. Uh, so that includes uh, Lord Ram, uh, Balaram, Krishna, and... Then you have Shakti Tattva, which the original one is Radharani. So there's a divine consort as well. Then you have uh, Shiva would be the next category. Shiva is another ontological category, the Shiva Tattva. Shiva is God when he contacts the material energy. So Vishnu never contacts the material energy. God never contacts the material energy. But when he does, he's Shiva. And the analogy given by Narada Muni is to milk and curd or milk and yogurt. So you can take milk and make yogurt. So in a way, yogurt is milk. 
but it's also not milk. You, you can't take mm. milk, you can't take yogurt and make milk. Uh, so there's a one creates the other, but the other can't create the one. So Krishna is the original, Vishnu is the original, and from there you get Shiva. Uh, okay. And then there's Ganesh, who is a son of. So uh, the first the one, like the Shakti Tattva, Vishnu Tattva, and Shiva Tattva, they're permanent posts. You can't become Shiva. You can't become Radharani and so on. Whereas the other ones are 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 Jiva Tattva. So Ganesh, I believe, is Jiva Tattva. He, he took birth as, Vish, as Shiva's son in this yuga and another yuga. It might be someone else. And I, I, at least I think that's true of Ganesh. But I, I know it's true of Brahma. Brahma is a post. So usually it's filled by a pure devotee. But if there's no one qualified, then Krishna will do it himself. Uh, and then Indra, Vayu, Agni, all these other demigods, uh, they're posts. So a living entity like you or me who's pious enough and earns some pious credits could take birth in the heavenly planets as one of these demigods. However, that's not considered desirable because there the material sense enjoyment is so much that it's it's a distraction and it's hard to make progress in love of God. It's better to be in the middle earth planet like like where we are now. It's a middle planet. There's the right amount of suffering and enjoyment so that we can be peaceful and focus on God, but we can also have that fire on our butts reminding us that this place actually isn't our home and we get out of here and develop a pure love of God. So, so this, this, uh, this is why I love about learning about this is because I understood about 10% of what you were just talking about and I can re-listen to it and try to pick up new things each time because there is such a huge world of stuff I do not understand that is coming out of India and, and Hinduism and, and these other Eastern religions. It's, it's, um, it's, it's mind boggling. Um, you know, I was, I was a, I was a youth pastor uh, for a Christian church. And I didn't know any of this stuff. Um, this, this is all just like, okay. Um, it's also interesting what you said about um, uh, what you said about how, uh, you know, Krishna can be, you know, different things over, over time, which is really cool. Um, there's kind of a concept that I've heard that, and I hope this isn't offensive, but they say, um, you know, I've heard that a lot of people try to explain away the Trinity and they'll say, well, God can be a father and he can be a son. And, you know, I, I'm this like, so for example, when I have a kid, I'll be a father and I'm the son of my dad and, um, you know, a, a lover to my wife. And like they, and that's how they try to explain that God is both father, son and spirit um, at the same time. They're all separate, hundred percent separate and hundred percent together is that almost somehow similar in in a way to what you're talking about i hope that's not offensive um but yeah i haven't got into trinity discussions uh, there's actually a, a christian who i need to, uh, i'm gonna have on my channel eventually um and uh he's done some work on the on the trinity he wrote a, a quite entertaining book on it um and so uh, yeah, I'm not familiar with the debate, so I'm not sure I can say how much it compares. But yeah, so the Christians want to say this God is three persons, but one God, and I, I might have some of the same objections that Muslims have to that. It, it sounds, <laughs> sounds incoherent. Whereas we we want to say there's one person, multiple personalities, and multiple forms. One God. You, from what I've understood, like watching a few of your videos, is you seem. Um, you seem to object to a lot of uh, like 
you seem to attack the Christians, not attack in a, in a bad way, but you seem to <laughs> point out problems with the Christian ideas of things the same way like an atheist might do. So it's interesting, yeah. but you do it from a, you do it on a completely different, like an atheist will go, oh, BS, blah, 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 for whatever reason. But you've got a completely different perspective. And, and I even heard you say something like, um, and this is something I always used to hear in church um, all the time, that, that Christianity is the only religion that has grace where God came down and sacrificed himself for humanity. And I saw in one of your other videos where you said, that's like crap or like not that specifically <laughs> yeah. something like along the lines, like, no, there are, okay, there are many yeah. other religions that aren't works-based. Um, maybe you can touch on that quickly. I think, well, I'd be surprised if there's, yeah, maybe some traditions, but I think most major traditions have had the grace works debate. They've just done it in their own language. Um, like we, we have this term, term uh, what is it? There's a sadhana siddha and there's a creeper siddha. So siddha means perfection. Uh, like sadhya is a goal. Sadhana is the work you do to get a goal. Siddha is perfection. I'm a, maybe those words are all related. I'm, I'm not a Sanskrit buff. So creeper means mercy. So it means you attain perfection just through mercy, where sadhana siddha means you earned it through work. So we've got even got the terminology. Um Dr. Howard Resnick, who he's pretty up there, pretty good at philosophy. I, I quite like his explanations. He's, he's, he actually wrote a translation of Bhagavad Gita where he tried to give a really literal interpretation of, of the text based on the Sanskrit. He's a Sanskrit uh, scholar. And uh, he he makes this point that that God needs to be just, like a fair, that there can't believe any, like, I'm going to give this person the mercy just because, and this person's not going to get it. If somebody gets the mercy, there should be something about that person. That's why they're getting it compared to another person. Otherwise it's just caprice on the part of God that some people are getting and other people aren't. We want to have this idea that God's fair and he's reciprocating. Krishna says in Bhagavad Gita, as someone approaches me, I reciprocate accordingly. So there's this idea of mercy that God's the one saving us. God's, like Krishna says in Bhagavad Gita, that to those who are, um, who are dedicated to serving me with love, I carry what they lack and I preserve what they have. So if we've got shortcomings, God's going to make up for it. And if we've got any merits, God's going to preserve those. Um, so that, that and in, in Bhagavatam, Krishna says that they, that he's the one who cleans the heart. Um, or it's said of, of Krishna that he's, he cleans the heart. The heart so to one who's, who's developed the urge to hear his messages uh, he personally cleans the heart so we we can't clean the dirt out of our hearts god has to do it god's the janitor of the heart so to speak but we we need to place ourselves in such a way that we receive that mercy i guess christians probably talk about the the vessels being upside down or being full of holes or you know one vessel not having holes and being up and that's the one that actually gets the mercy and is able to retain it it's, but it's also like, I, I think it's just a flawed analogy, like a, a flawed argument anyway, because it's like, who, who cares if, like, let's say Christianity is the only one that has like grace or something around. Who cares? Like, like I could say the same thing, like, um, about another religion, like uh, your religions, they, they still eat meat where, you know, it, the, the true religion is a, ve a vegetarians, you know, yeah, our religion's the only religion that, that actually gives you a scientific process, process, how to elevate your consciousness and develop pure love of God. Other religions tell you this is the goal, but they don't actually give you the details how to do it. Like imagine if you go to a gym, you're like oh, all the other gyms, they're workspace, but we're just going to give you these hormones and give you this muscle powder. You're not actually going to have to do any work. It's like, 
I mean, tying the analogy back, I don't, I don't know if the analogy really carries so much, but um, I, I, yeah, I, was, I had this discussion with a Christian the other day on my channel. I think it was with Joshua Ferris. And I, I was saying, if you go too far with mercy, you run into problems because then it's like Calvinism. Like I was saying, caprice on the part of God, there's got to be something we do. But also, I mean, if, if love of God is something valuable, it, it, it only makes sense that there's things we'd need to do in, in order to, like when you care about something, God wants to see our dedication, like Christian and Bhagavad Gita says de- the word dedication, or that de- there's there's a lot of words wording in there that shows that there needs to be some commitment on our part. We need to actually care about it. It needs to mean something to us. But to say that we ha- we're committed or that we really care about something is completely vacuous unless we're actually doing something about it. Mm. So obviously our effort is not enough. We, it's not something we can do on our own strength. But if we're not doing our bit, then why would God pick up the slack? Yeah. And it could, it could, is that something he could even do? Like there's the parable of the pedestrian, which is it's used to make an argument against, um, I've heard it in the context of uh, historic racism in America. That uh, the, So the parable goes that uh, someone gets run over by a car. Let's say Bill Gates run them over so there's no shortage of money to pay for fixing the person's back. But they go to the doctors and the doctors say, there's actually no way we can fix this. The only way to fix it is for you to do hours every day of intensive physiotherapy. You're going to have to do the work. And the person can say, but it's not fair. I didn't earn this. It's like, maybe it's not fair, but this is the only way you're going to fix the problem. Okay. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, okay. Um and so this is really interesting. So I just want to um, touch on how, before we jump into your your journey and your story, I want to touch on how do the Hare Krishnas or Vaishnava, Vaishnavism, okay. Yeah. How does that differ um, from traditional Hinduism? Uh, I would say it it is the essence of whatever you mean by hinduism i mean first of all the word hinduism doesn't really mean anything I, well, i'd say it's the essence of the vedas like the word vedanta means the end of all knowledge so it's it's, okay. it's a way of claiming the essence of the of the vedas and then bhagavatam is the commentary on the on the vedanta sutra vedanta sutra is the essence of the vedas it's it was compiled by vedavyas vedavyas then wrote bhagavatam and that was his commentary on the vedanta sutra so it's it's the essence of the Vedas written by the author. Uh, so anyway, that, that's kind of like an internal, yeah, arguing our position kind of thing, which was done extensively within the tradition, arguing that, you know, we're giving the real understanding of the Vedas. But this yeah. word Hinduism, it, it's a geographical term. It, it was used to refer to the people who lived on the other side of the Sindhu River. It got mispronounced by one group and mispronounced by the next group, which made it into the word Hindu. It was, it was used initially by Indians to refer to themselves only when speaking to the, I think, I guess it was the Muslims on the other side. Uh, and eventually they just started using it themselves. And then it, it really took over when, with the colonization and Vivekananda and Ramakrishna trying to unite Indians and say, we have one religion, but the word Hinduism to refer to one tradition, one religion is, is kind of like using the word. Sorry, there was just Rahamic. Yes, all that, your lights. It's, it's yeah. kind of like talking about the Abrahamic religions as if they're one thing or talking about South American religions or uh, North American religions as if they're just one thing. Like mm. the North American religion teaches this. It's like, what do you mean? Which tribe? Yeah, okay. Okay, so, interesting. 
Uh, but as far as the Vedas go, so I, I think historically there's a real case to be made. Uh, Dr. Howard Resnick has given a, a lecture series at uh, I think Gainesville University. You can find it on the web where on the history of religions in India. And he makes a compelling case that Vaishnavism was the prominent thread all the way through, other than at a few points in history when impersonalism was more popular. Um, so, I, yeah, I would say Hinduism is a modern degradation of the original Vedic tradition, which was primarily Vaishnavism. And Vaishnavism was the, the uh, essence of it. But of course, that's going to be debated within the religions and uh, Hindus who have different views are going to disagree with me. Mm, okay. Um, one thing I did, did find very interesting too was um, when I was looking into, into everything, um, I discovered that like most religions hate gay people, like hate gay people, but I found <laughs> that you guys don't. Is that right? Uh, like you have so a different perspective. You, you have a unique perspective to members of the LGBT community, right? There's no mention of gays in the Vedas that I'm aware of. Uh, there is actually some mention that someone wrote a book about it. Uh, I think it was called Tritya Prakriti. So the word Tritya Prakriti, we might translate it as sexually atypical, mm-hmm. um, which I think is a nice word because like, I heard one conservative YouTuber talking about the alphabet people and they keep adding letters and it takes all the elegance away from language. Like when they when they study um, animals to see if they're speaking in a language, they, they figure out that one way you can tell something's a language is the sounds that are repeated often are shorter. Like, you, you know, doc, mm. doctors use words often and they'll just call something P- PTSD because or they, they come up with all these acronyms because they use it or not, so it becomes shortened. And then the the left comes along and they want to lengthen everything, but I guess that's a side point. So uh, back on, on topic, um, yeah, there's not there's condemnations of excessive sex, sexual activity. Um, so there's a lot of Harry Christians who look at that and say, okay, well, based on what we're hearing in Bhagavad Gita and Bhagavatam, a hetero couple or a gay couple enjoying is basically the same thing, unless it's meant for the procreation of children. So there's basically sexual activity is meant for the procreation of children and, and anything else is equally uh, distracting us from God. And the reason why it's bad isn't because it's like there's something really sinful about enjoying in that way. The reason it's bad is because it degrades our consciousness and pull, distracts us from developing our pure love of God. It, it's kind of like taking drugs or something. It's, it's not like taking drugs is inherently sinful. It's just, well, I guess you could say you're earning some karma. Um, but the real problem is that it, it's preventing you from developing pure love of God, and that's why we take issue with it. So it's, um, for people, at least, it, for at people, least it's consistent. At least it's consistent down the board. You know? Yeah, I, it resonates with me a lot better. So, but for there's there's another principle which is somehow or rather fix your mind on Krishna. This was stated by I think Rupa Goswami or perhaps Jiva Goswami, who's one of our prominent acharyas, like like kind of like a church father kind of thing. And, uh, and it, so the goal of human life is develop pure love of God. And we have, we can't be, perform on the highest level immediately. We need to go through. So there's Niam Agraha and Niam Agraha. And the, the, when, when you put the two words together, it's pronounced the same way, no matter which one you're saying, because of uh, Sanskrit alliteration rules or whatever the term is. Uh, so what it means is holding on to the rules and regulations too much or, or being too loose about the rules and regulations. So if, if it's a long A before the graha, it's holding on too much. And if it's a short A before the graha, it's 
being too loose about it. Oh no, I think the A Graha is holding on and Agraha is being loose, but the Niem Niema has an A on the end. So when you put them together, you get an A either way. So mm-hmm. my um poor Sanskrit commentary, <laughs> but you get the <laughs> idea. So uh, yeah, when you're at a certain level of advancement, there's a certain uh way you'll hold yourself up to the higher standard. And then when you advance more, you'll hold yourself up to a higher standard in a different way. So if somebody's on a lower level than us or they've got, it might not even be lower. They might be at the same level of, as us, uh, but they just happen to have different anartas for me. So I might have this real false ego problem where I can't handle anyone saying anything bad about me. Whereas another person, they've got this problem uh, with sex and they, we could have different problems, but I could be criticizing them for one problem. Meanwhile, I've got problems that are just as bad or worse. And that's stupid. I guess it's like that Christian idea. So we should focus on our own faults. And when, it, when you know, like it's the guru's job to figure out the standard for the person, not, you know, every person who happens to see what someone's doing, we should leave, leave each other alone and respect people's differences. But so for the person, so for a person who is perhaps some like, so, so somebody who's gay, uh, the best thing they could do is live a celibate life. But if they can't do that, they should at least be monogamous, you know, like reduce the amount of sinfulness, right? Like, just having a different partner all the time is obviously worse than just than having the same partner all the time. And um, like even with trans transgenderism, some people may be happier transitioning. And if, if they're happier that way and they can focus their mind on God better that way, that's awesome. But we should be a little bit empirical about that rather than being ideologically motivated. So we should actually look at the facts of the matter not just be driven by like, and there's a, a vacuum of religion created by the secularization of society. And they've made a religion out of a lot of left ideologies where it's like, you're not even allowed to question that somebody, somebody who thinks that they need to transition. You're not allowed to ask them, well, like, uh, is there anything else going on in your life? Like, is there any other reasons why you're unhappy? Like there's higher rates of transitioning among autistic girls. And it's like, well, maybe they're just autistic. <laughs> why would autistic mm-hmm. girls be transitioning more because autistic girls f- feel more comfortable around men because men are more logical it's like well you don't need to change gender to hang out with men and be more logical we can just accept a girl who's more logical and that might be what makes these people happier so a uh, little off topic yeah it's getting a little into the political screen i think a lot of a lot of that is like politically motivated and i think what happens is like you know sides get chosen and then people get like they overextend in in whatever which category to where like you know it's it just seems like a mess i try and stay out of like conversations like that um but moving on to your journey um how did you become a Hare krishna so i was a christian growing up um well we went to church a little bit when i was young like i think we stopped going by the time i was five and then when I was 11, I was bored and lonely. And I said, why don't we start going to church? So we went to church. I made a couple of friends there. My mom's still a dedicated Christian following on from that. I was like praying every day for, I don't know how long, a couple of years, I guess. And then when I was 16, I was became, my philosophical side was coming out as reading Socrates and things. And the church wasn't able, the, the youth group that, that I wasn't satisfied with the answers. I, I had issues with some of the ideas. So I, I I always believed in God. I just came up with this idea that, you know, God exists and, you know, Jesus ta- taught stuff about God. Other people have taught stuff about God, but maybe no current tradition has the accurate knowledge about God and is still presenting it. Um, in defense of Christianity, the church I was going to was going to, was in the process of watering everything down in order to c- cater for a liberal society. Mm. And so... Um, 
maybe things would have been different if I had a, a more uh, substantial church. Um, and then when I was 21, I'd, I'd moved back to New Zealand and I, there was like a Hare Krishna preaching center. I, I started, I went, had some friends that were going there. I was eating Hare Krishna Prasadam and uh, the Prasadam's one way to, you know, what they say, the quickest way to a man's heart is through his stomach, that the sanctified food uh, purifies the consciousness. I was eating a lot of that because I was commuting on a bicycle. So I was eating copious amounts and First time I went to the loft, I was, um, was convinced by the philosophy, this idea that we're, we're trying to, we have, we think we're going to be satisfied through a, a conjugal relationship. We think we'll find that right partner and we'll be happy. But this is, this is delusional because we all, he gave prominent examples of, you know, all sorts of stories of people uh, thinking they were going to be happy and then being disappointed and uh, usually successful marriages are, are when people don't place such heavy expectations on one another, but are just more there to to give rather than ex- expecting perfection from the other person. And really where we're going to get satisfied is through a relationship with God. And that made complete sense to me the way it was explained. I started reading the book, started listening to the lectures and everything made sense. And uh, I would you know, I would get based on the teachings that it would seem that I'd practiced Krishna consciousness in a past life because the moment I heard it, I was like, oh yeah, right, of course. Um, yeah. Other people can take more convincing. And then that was, yeah, so that was 2011. So I guess okay. I've been at it. What is that? Yeah, uh, 11 years now, is it? Yeah, 11 years. After after the 10 year mark, you're just kind of like, oh, 10 years. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> wow. So did you like... Um, I don't know, do, do, do um, Hare Krishnas have like a born again moment or is it just kind of like you slowly, like, like do, do you get baptized or do you like, you know? So there's, there's first initiation, second initiation. So after you've been chanting 16 rounds a day for six months, you can take initiation. There's uh, various gurus. You find a guru who you're inspired by, who you have faith in, you think faithfully presenting the teachings. You take initiation. They give you a cool Sanskrit name and then you're part of the club and then you can get second initiation and they give you a cool string. They give you another mantra and you're allowed to go on the altar. Right. I kind of want to get a cool name. Maybe I should join. <laughs> no. um, uh, okay. That's, that's interesting. Um, I actually did want to ask you, so uh, Hare Krishna is you, you, re- you repeat like you chant something, right? Is that, can you explain that a little yeah, bit? Yeah, so we chant the Hare Krishna Maha Mantra, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. So that's mm-hmm. three names of God. Uh, it's it, The whole mantra's got 16 names in it because you repeat them. Uh, and you chant that 108 times. So that, that mantra 108 times is one round. 16 of those rounds every day. That's the standard given by Prabhupada for initiation. So, and the idea is you have numerical strength and then you're actually going to do it. So if, when you, like if you, you know, if someone wants to exercise, they sit in their mount, they're going to jog every day and then they're actually going to do it rather than just say, I'll try I'll run when I feel like it. I'll, I'll try to run as much as I can, but you're not going to do it. If you actually set a number to it, you're, you're, you're going to get way better results. Um, it takes most people two hours. I do it a bit faster because I did a lot of tongue twisters growing up. Mm-hmm. So you do you do that every day still? Yeah. Oh wow! Have you missed a day? Like if you're sick or something, or uh, there's been a couple of times where I had rounds left over for the next day because I like 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> too busy. And the challenge yeah. of the next day, yeah. Is it something like you can do as you like, uh, commuting to work or is it something you have to like you like a muslim i, I do chant I, I usually chant four rounds while i'm driving and the rest of them i chant after the kids go to bed or yeah, while okay, i'm cool. jumping on the trampoline with the kids which is what i was doing about an hour before coming online <laughs> cool cool oh that's 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 really interesting um so i wanted to ask you about uh proper basic beliefs well, I've, I've, I wanted to get into reasons to believe, so reasons to believe, but I first wanted to touch on proper basic beliefs. So, like, you know, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit new to philosophy, but essentially, like, when I have um, conversations with a, a um, relative of mine who's quite into Eastern um, religion, he'll reject my notion of um, the universe exists, um, we can make observations of the universe and I exist. He'll, he'll reject that somewhat in some part of our philosophical conversation. And I'm interesting. I'm interested in like, what do you, do, do, do you have proper basic beliefs that you like, they're essentially unjustified. Like you can't justify them outside of just having to accept that they exist. Do you have that in your philosophy? So I, I do like, uh, Alvin Plantinga's reformed epistemology. Um, Again, I'm going back to Dr. Howard Resnick again. He's also known as Hridayan Anagosami. He's um, he must he's read a bit of philosophy, so I'm sure he's getting his ideas from similar places, from like Alvin Plantinga and other places. But yeah, he talks about self-evident truth. He quotes the Declaration of Independence, where it says, "We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men were created equal." So even mm. democracy has properly basic beliefs, if mm. we're going to use that terminology. That. Where do you get this idea of equality on on, on in any empirical empirical measure you could come up with? We're not equal. I, I, you see, in my philosophy, I wouldn't I wouldn't say I, I would say that no, that's not that's not a proper basic belief. In my philosophy, I would say, and I might be getting this wrong. I might be getting the terminology wrong, and someone's going to correct me and say I'm an idiot in the comments. And I'm sorry to the commenters, but essentially, like, what's the bare minimum assumptions that we can get away with to then build like? For example, like this is something that I I, I um, get frustrated with my my family member who is into Eastern um, perspectives and things philosophy is I'll say you have to to answer my question you have to assume pre pre uh, presuppose that you exist that I exist and the universe exists you have to presuppose those without any justification at all you just have to presuppose those to answer the question because if you don't presuppose that you exist. You wouldn't answer a question. You you wouldn't be like you have to presuppose that he rejects it, and I don't understand why. <laughs> Maybe this is a bit off topic. Well, but. yeah, I, I had this conversation with Aaron Ra, and he got really irate. It's like, I'm so oh, you're talking about Aaron Ra. Yeah, I think that one's posted. Okay. Yeah, it's one. It was one of my first interactions. Actually, I did a video responding to him. I, I sent it to him and a couple of people that I included in the video, and he I was like debating him in Messenger. <laughs> so. Sure, at least got better things to do to debate me in private chat, and then I went on his <laughs> channel and we we chatted, and I, I did I played the same epistemology game. It's like so, you know, the basic argument is you want me to prove God exists using an epistemology with which I can't even prove my own existence to you with, mm. which is clearly silly, um, because yeah, how, how do you prove external world realism or the existence of other minds? You just have to take it for granted. But I would say what we're not just assuming it without evidence what their the existence of the world outside of my mind proves itself to me 
by the nature of the quality. So I guess there's two assumptions we need to make. Uh, one assumption is that we have an ability to, to tell hot from cold, to, to distinguish one quality from another, that we have senses that interact with the world. That's one assumption. And the other assumption is that uh, the quality of something has some relationship to its ontology. So like fake leather and real leather might fool the average person, but if you take a microscope to it, you're going to see a difference. So there might be surface think, level ways which things can sing the same. I think there are more assumptions. I think as soon as you said we, you made an assumption. When you said we can tell the difference between hot and cold, as soon as you said we, you've made an assumption. You've made heaps of assumptions that you can't just... No, because my, the quality of my experience of other people proves to me that they exist. So I, yeah, I'm but... claiming to be able to distinguish... Uh, between the qualities of people who exist and people, and you know, between a person but, who exists and just a figment of my imagination, this, and I'm and I'm totally claiming topic, those qualities right? match on to a person who but exists. But how do you person. how do you adjust how do you just like if I, if I say justify to me your my, like how do you do that? Justify to you that my mind exists. No, no, like my like when you say my experiences do this, justify the my there. How do you justify the my? Not sure if I understand the question. Uh, nor do I. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe this is too. Maybe this too. Um, so, okay. So, what would be some reasons to believe in your um, in Krishna? In so the main way somebody's going to come to an understanding is through coming in contact with devotees, eating the prasadam, reading the books, and following the process. So, sometimes devotees like to compare it to a lab experiment so you just like in a lab experiment there's a certain procedure you follow and then you get a result similarly this is an experiment on consciousness so you you yeah it's said in the teachings that if you if you apply yourself in this way to these teachings you'll get these results and they'll come in this order so it's we could give an analogy to if you're out somewhere and you're trying to get to a certain destination but you don't know how to get there. So you ask somebody, oh, can you tell me how to get to this beach, say? And they say, oh, yeah, you get on this bus, you get off that bus, you walk down this street, you hop on the train, you get off, you walk a bit more, and you're there. And and they might say, you get off the bus when you see this building, or you know, they'll, they'll give various signposts along the way. And as you're going, first off, you, you don't know. Maybe the person's just pulling your leg. Maybe they think they know how to get there, but actually they don't know either. Um, but as... As you see on your on your journey, and you see, oh, this person accurately described many things about the terrain. Your confidence that this person gave you accurate information goes up, and eventually, you make it to the beach, and you can see that they were right all along. So, similarly, with Krishna consciousness, you uh, like there's one verse that says, uh, "Just as for a person engaged in eating, three things happen simultaneously: they experience pleasure, they get nourishment, and their hunger goes away." Uh, and it, this is nice and empirical. So like you don't need anyone to give you a certificate to say you've eaten a nourishing meal. Uh, you know, if you've got energy from the food you're eating, you, you, you use energy. And if you don't eat well, you don't have that energy. You know, if your hunger is gone, that, and you know, if the food's pleasurable. So similarly, it's said that for someone engaged in the practice, process of bhakti, of devotion to God, uh, they get direct perception of the absolute truth. They develop detachment from this world. And they they get bhakti. The bhakti is is like love of God, right? So I guess they use the word bhakti in there twice, but 
um, which is redundant. It must have been a different word in the verse. Okay. Um, okay. In, in, interesting. Have you had any? Um, so when I was in church, I um, I spoke in tongues. I laid my hand on people. They fell over. I had some elate, uh, feelings of elation and, and euphoria. Um, when I first got, um, when I first had my kind of born again experience, I um, I was walking around for like two days in this like haze, like I was drunk almost, and um, and I, I just I just felt felt like a completely different person and people knew me as like this depressed kid in high school. And then the, the Monday came around and I was like Captain Christian. I actually, someone gave me that nickname Captain Christian because I became this like happy, like running Bible studies and friends with everyone. Um, and so I had like a lot of really intense experiences. I, I, know, I no longer attach a truth claim to those, but I'm interested, have you had experiences, what you call spiritual experiences or maybe profound experiences that, um, or do you know? Have you experienced miracles or something like that in your faith and your journey? Uh, yeah, I don't know if I've experienced anything special like that. It's more of like a steady kind of like being less interested in material things. I mean, I've like I've always had faith in God somewhat, but then like like you know, I used to smoke lots of weed growing up and stuff, and you know, gave gave <laughs> yeah. all that up, no problem. no problem so the main one that's easy to measure is the detachment because it's not something you can fake right Mm. if someone like the the drive for sense enjoyment that's that's harry krishna ego but you know just trying to enjoy out there in the world trying to lord it over material nature uh it's it's not something you can that you can overcome by just like pushing it down the only way to overcome it is, as as said in Bhagavad Gita, param jishvanivartate. You you give up a, a lower taste by acquiring a higher taste. So it's more of a, oh. a gradual disinterest in material pleasures, uh, while you know while experiencing an increase in spiritual bliss. And uh, it comes and goes depending on on how much I'm actually following. You know how much I'm careful what I listen mm-hmm. to and what what I eat and so on. Exactly. A lot of yeah. before I had kids, and I I could get up early and go go to the temple in the morning and do yeah. all the morning prayers. Interesting. Um, yeah, there's a lot of there's the same kind of idea in um in, in Christianity at least um where it was always like rely on God's strength to get through, rely on God's strength to do this. You can't do this yourself. This is works, and people would you know spend time praying and 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 that, and then that would remove away some of the material. Or like fasting was a big one. Do you guys fast? Uh, yeah, so there's fast days on special festival days where we're honoring a previous acharya or an appearance of God. Uh, and then there's a kadazi where we don't have any grains. Um, but you can also fast the whole day on a kadazi, but that's optional. At least we just don't eat grains. Okay, cool. And um, in Florida, yeah. there's so many Harry Krishnas in one city that the shops on Akadasi they put out. It's Akadasi on the potatoes. <laughs> Harry Krishnas all eat potatoes on Akadasi. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, well, let's jump. Um, as we wrap up now, we'll jump over to the Q&A. So a bunch of these questions are from, some of these questions are from um, our Discord, um, some people online, some friends, some family members, um, some of them, one or two are from me. Um, so they'll pop up on screen and I was hoping you could answer them. Um, so we've got about 10 or ten or 11 here. So um, so in no particular order, uh, just the first one is, what do you think of the plausibility of the existence of the Christian God? Um, so I think, I mean, 
I think the Christians are worshipping God, just like people in different cultures are using the same sun, even if they think different things about the sun and call the sun a different name. So the question would be, what do I think about the plausibility of certain Christian conceptions of God? And then mm. I would just pick a particular Christian conception of God, which is closest to what Harry Christians believe and say, I like that one. So um, do you want to be more specific? Um I guess like let's say let's take like the a um the let's take let's take like a the church the church style that I was involved in like the um Pentecostal Hillsong esque kind of um uh Christianity type of Christianity. What do you think of uh the plausibility of that being like the one true interpretation of God? So can you be more like tell me give me a description of it? Yeah, so do you know Hillsong? Yeah, yeah, I know how some. Yeah, yeah. So, like, do you think um, they don't? Do you think, they don't make give a lot of ontology of God in their songs, though. They don't what? They don't give a lot of ontology about God in their songs. Yeah, so. yeah. I guess, I guess, what, what I'm asking is, like, do you do you do you find Christianity like as an idea in itself plausible? Like, say, for example, Hari Krishna, um, Vaishnava, Vaishnava. Is that right? Yeah, Vaishnavism. Vaishnavism. Yeah. If Vaishnavism okay. was not yeah. um, was not a thing, like it didn't exist, would you like? And you had to choose like another religion, or you had to find another way to connect to God. Would you? Right. So okay. If, if I if I didn't have knowledge from Bhagavatam and Bhagavad Gita and so on, and I came in contact with Christianity, I might be satisfied if I came in contact with a version of Eastern Orthodoxy. Okay. Perhaps. Interesting. So, there's there's a lot of focus on the chanting of the holy name in the Eastern Orthodox Church. Oh, um, okay. I well, I should I should qualify that. <laughs> there's a lot of debate, and it's considered heresy by many. Uh, but there's there's a a strong minority who has a strong belief in the power of the holy name. And Harry Krishna is all about the power of the holy name. So that's that stuff's quite impressive. I, I, put, I have a documentary on my channel about the persecuted saints you've never heard of and. It covers a little bit about what they believe and how it's similar to what Christians believe. Interesting. I'll link a I'll link one of your videos down below. You can tell me which one you want me to link um, to your channel um, sure. of this video. Um, so, next question uh, regarding your beliefs: How supportive is your family? So, my wife's a Hare Krishna. My uh, my kids believe what I tell them to believe because they're six and three. <laughs> <laughs> and that they love it. I mean, the, the Harry Krishna School, the teachers there say it's so much nicer teaching at the Harry Krishna School than anywhere else. The kids are more angelic. Um, my mom is a Christian, and we, I, if, when I first joined, I tried having philosophical debates with her, but the, yeah, she, she's not a debater. But uh, now, 10 years on, I'm a lot more mature, and she is too. And like, she'll like, have fun with her friends that are Christians and say, you know, my son's a Harry Christian. They'll like sort of be shocked and they'll say, you know what they do? They chant God's holy names out in the street quite regularly. <laughs> they're like, she like explains it to them in a way that a Christian wouldn't really have a problem with it. And they're like a little bit surprised because yeah. they don't really know anything about Harry Christian. So uh, yeah, my mom's uh, supportive and my, my dad's um, not really into religion. So he doesn't mind. He's just happy. I'm happy. Cool. Cool. Um, how is um, believing Krishna different from other Eastern gods? What sets apart your specific belief system? And I know this is a bit, this is because what we've talked about, you kind of see obviously God as people worshipping Krishna from different religions, right? 
So it's kind of a hard question. Yeah. So, I mean, you do get Shaivites who think Shiva's the supreme personality of Godhead. Uh, they'll often be impersonalists. Um, I mean, other Eastern gods. I, I'm not totally hip on everything that could be categorized as Eastern God. I, I know I use the term, but I, I'm just really using that as a term that people understand to refer to Krishna consciousness. Uh, also in Buddhism, there's certain versions of Mahayana Buddhism, which are really theistic. And they talk about how in the Dharma ending age that we're currently in, the sole salvific practice is the chanting of Nimbutsu, which is like the holy name of Lord Buddha. Um, which sounds a lot like what Sri Chaitanya taught, which Sri Chaitanya founded the, he started our branch, which is all focused on chanting Hare Krishna, which he says, you know, and there's a quote uh, from one of the Vedas that in this age of quarrel and hypocrisy, that the only means of salvation is the chanting of God's holy names. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, there, there are a lot, 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 there's a lot of versions of Hinduism that I'd, I'd say are similar to like, nature spirit worship or ancestor worship or different things so i'd say they differ because they, they're not really worshiping god or they, they've got a lot of misconceptions about what god is at least okay um why is this religion true and all others three plus three thousand plus <laughs> wrong uh actually uh, I'm, I'm about to publish a video which is briefly touches on that i've done a few videos on religious exclusivism so um there could be 3,000 plus religions. I know there's 30,000 denominations of Christianity. I could probably ask a Christian the same thing. Why is your denomination of Christianity true and the other 30,000 wrong? So I think, I think it's actually 35,000. 35,000. Okay. My apologies. Uh, uh, 40, 45,000. Yeah, it's a lot. Okay. Okay. Um, so, yeah, the, actually, I did a video which was responding to the argument from inconsistent revelation where the atheist likes to say, you know, there's like a thousand said to die and on one side is Christianity. And so why would you think Christianity is true? The chances are they're all false. But when they say that, they're not saying the chances are they're all false. What they're saying is the chances are there's another head on that die, which is atheism. Chances are that one's true. But, of course, it, it loses its rhetorical power when you met, give a more accurate statement like that. Uh and then I, I gave a list of five things that all the religions, based pretty much all religions believe in, that this world is not our home, there's some other place or some other goal which is our home. Uh, we, ex our existence continues on after the death of the body. Uh, there's a few things like that that everyone agrees on. So if we're going to you know, give an argument like the one that, that these atheists give, then actually the atheist loses. Um, so yeah, back on topic. So what uh, I would explain why these exist and why that's consistent with God being all loving rather than explain why they're all wrong. So uh, one, you know, God gives a revelation that's meant for a particular place in a particular time and people just carry it on because they don't actually get hip with the new revelation or uh, they, they don't catch, catch the new prophet that comes and gives the corrections and they just keep with the misunderstanding of the old one. Um, or it was just a very simplistic teaching meant for a particular time for like, like in, in, in educating students, they'll do this a lot. In physics, they'll teach some people something that's like the real thing's too complicated for them to understand. So they'll teach old physics, which was easier to understand. And then when they get to you know, university, they're eventually like, oh yeah, all that stuff we taught you, it's, it's kind of not that accurate. Here's the real understanding. And that's not, okay. that's not, it's not lying. It's not being deceitful. The teachers aren't lying to the kids when they teach them in this way. They're just doing what the kids need in order to progress in their understanding. So similarly, these other religions could be giving 
uh, it's not totally true ontological claims, but it's these people benefit from understanding in this way. Like Krishna says, for those who worship the demigods, they make their faith strong. Uh, and in the Vedas, you find statements that Shiva is supreme in the Shiva Purana, and then elsewhere you find statements that Krishna is supreme. And I say the Vedas aren't deceiving you because if you look at the Vedas in, t- in totality, you can find actually, it's actually saying that Krishna is supreme. You find statements saying Shiva is this in relation to Krishna. You don't find statements saying Krishna is subordinate to Shiva. So if you're just talking about Shiva and you make the supreme claims, that you're sort of leaving out some truth. But if you if you talk about them in relation to one another, then you you got to speak accurately. So uh, yeah, that's I think that's covered that, eh? Yeah. Um, this is a good one. What evidence is there for reincarnation and can it be falsified? So, yeah, if there's the evidence for reincarnation could be falsified. Um, the evidence for reincarnation, uh, maybe some people are aware, I've debated this on my channel a couple of times, or I debated it on Caption Christianity, it's posted on my channel. Uh, the one with Seth was quite good. He had some good objections. The evidence comes in the form of children who spontaneously report memories of past lives. Researchers like Stephen Tucker, sorry, Jim Tucker and Stephen, uh, his name's uh, Dr. Ian Stevenson, have collected these cases and been quite rigorous about, the, like they've put them in a database and compared them and stuff. So uh, the cases are compelling when they have three different lines of evidence all converging. So they're able to identify a, a previous personality, a deceased individual, and, and this child has three different kinds of evidence that match the deceased individual. So they have personality traits that carry over, like behavior. They might show signs of PTSD that match the cause of death from the previous life. Like a child who remembers drowning will have a phobia of water. Uh, a child who remembers dying in a, a plane crash will have a phobia of planes. Um, and they'll have carry over personality traits. They'll have birthmarks that match a death wound on the previous indiv- personality. And they'll... What's the third one? Uh, they're able to report accurate details about this person's life. Uh, they, you know, they say the things they remember. It turns out those things did happen. In one case, a, a boy was able to locate a gold queen, which the previous personality had hidden. Another child located uh, in the drain on the property that no one had ever noticed. They'd carved a name. And he located it and pointed out none of the, the family other than had known about it, that it was there until this child pointed it out. So could it be falsified? Yeah, I mean, if, if you found that there was some hoax going on where the gold coin was planted and it was all arranged to, to cheat everybody. Um, so, yeah, each individual case could be falsified, but there's a lot of these cases and it, it would seem weird for them to all be hoaxes. It's, it's, it seems to be that they're actual organic cases. Yeah, I'm, I'm just, um, I've seen some stuff that's quite compelling. Like I watched that documentary on Netflix, um, Surviving Death. I think it's called, and there's like episode six oh, yeah. was about. Um, and uh, I was quite blown away by that because I don't know anything about reincarnation. But wouldn't you say, w- like, just to push back on that a little bit, um, to play devil's advocate, wouldn't you say, couldn't you say the same thing about children who die and go to heaven and then come back? Well, there's heaps of books written about that and videos and documentaries and testimonials about people who die and then, like, go to heaven and then they come back which I don't think is even works biblically, by the way, but it's just, there's uh, always. Okay. <laughs> um, how is that a, is supposed to be inconsistent with reincarnation? What's well, what do, well, I think that I thought there was like reincarnation. I didn't think there was a heaven with um, reincarnation. I thought the concept was 
Oh, no, no, no. I mean, there is a spiritual world that we can ascend to. That That's the ultimate goal. It's not just permanent reincarnation. It's reincarnation oh, okay. until we learn the lessons we need to learn and eventually make it out of this material world. However, for those children who experience going to heaven, they're probably going to they're probably not going to the spiritual world proper. They're probably going to like an intermediate realm, which is full of love where guiding angels or, I mean, God might appear to these people. Who knows where the way they're, they're powered in love and prepared for the next lessons and then sent back again. Okay. Um, uh, the Bhagavad Gita 413 talks about Krishna creating the caste system. Can you touch on what that means and how readers may misunderstand what is being taught? Let me pull up the verse. Uh, I mean, I can't comment on the class system. I'm just interested to see what the verse is. So uh, according to the three modes of material nature and work associated with them, the four divisions of human society are created by me. And although I'm the creator of the system, you should know that I'm yet the non-doer being unchangeable. Right. So the caste system is often maligned because of the modern degradation of it. So it's not based on birth. It's based on quality. Uh, anyone who says it's based on birth, they they need to defend that claim based on the Vedas. Uh, and so anything that people take trouble with based on the caste system, I would probably join them in, in having problems with that and arguing against it. Uh, the I've uh, Mother Irmala, uh, uh, Edith Bess, she's given uh, done a lot of work on it. I wonder if her book's come out yet. She's she's down, got a lecture series called um, The Yogic Path of right livelihood i think and she talks about it it's basically just like a, a vedic system of myers briggs of understanding your psychophysical nature uh under, so the the four varnas uh sudra kshatriya vaishya brahman they what differentiates them is not how intelligent they are how, how capable they are of doing things but what makes them tick so sudra it's about creating beauty uh, even a, a, a like a, even a plumber creates beauty because they can do beautiful pipe work, even though no one's going to see it. And also by by them doing their plumbing work, the world is more beautiful. If we didn't have plumbers, the world would be a lot more ugly. Um, uh, Vaishya creates wealth. They're the kind of person who they'll make a business, grow it to a certain size, sell it for thirty million dollars, and then when you ask them why are you still working, they're like, I just like to. <laughs> they, they, they buy another business, scale it up and sell it for a hundred million dollars this time. And they'll just continue doing that because, and the perfect expression of that is producing food. So, you know, if I just grow enough potatoes to feed my family and stop, that's not really so good for society. But if we have a number of people who they grow enough to feed their family and then they buy another farm and they grow even more and they get people working for them. And before long, they're feeding the entire village. Uh, that's really good for society. The Kshatriya is driven by that. They're the, um, like the the government officers kind of people and the soldiers, they're driven by protecting dharmic principles uh, by making sure people are getting their needs met. They they can't bear to see someone like dharma violated and a person become a victim, and that's what makes these people tick. So if you have these people in government, things go nicely. If you have a sudra in government, uh, sudras just like to enjoy, so they'll you know take the big, you know, they'll be bought with lobbying money and make decisions that aren't best for society because they don't have the strength. They're not driven by Dharma in the same way. They'll compromise. Sounds like a few, sounds like a few politicians we have in Australia at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. So most politicians are sudras. And then the Brahmins, they're driven by ideas. They, they care about truth. Um, 
And these are the people you want being intellectuals because they won't compromise on truth. If they think something's true, they'll say it regardless of what, what, how it's going to affect them financially. And then, of course, how you structure. If you have these people in these positions, then they'll, they'll, they'll create constraint and incentive structures that make things work nicely. So if it's followed well, then society is peaceful, uh, rich, uh, beautiful, <laughs> full of good, under, accurate understandings of the world and how to make life better and principles are upheld. And this is why Krishna creates it. Cool. Um, how do you think the world would differ if Eastern philosophy had a greater influence on the West? Well, I mean, one thing we've got to be careful of is taking the best from the East and comparing it to the worst of the West. So we could equally ask how would the world differ if the best aspects of Western philosophy had a greater influence? So just to qualify the statement there, but I mean, I think a lot of the philosophy of religion debates would would have a lot more interesting things to talk about, would, would change course a lot. A problem of evil would probably lessen if we brought in this idea of karma and reincarnation. Um, but like, let's let's be more specific and say, what if Hare Krishna philosophy had a greater influence? Then there'd be a lot less meat-eating. Uh, there'd be a lot less mm. intoxication. There'd be a lot less illicit sex. Um, and there'd be a lot more chanting of the holy names. Like right now in Wellington, there's a couple of devotees who are at this protest against the wishes of the managers of the society. Um, but they're having some really interesting experiences with the holy name where when there's tensions with the protesters and the police, both the police and the protesters have figured out that the, the Hare Krishna chanting de-escalates things and, and calms things down. So everyone's appreciating the presence of, presence of the holy name down there. So... I, I would say that if there was more chanting Hare Krishna, there'd be less crime because chanting Hare Krishna purifies people's consciousness. That might also be true of the Jesus prayer, though, just to be ecumenical. Yeah, yeah, and I appreciate that. Um, what advice would you give to another Hare Krishna that finds himself doubting their beliefs? They should watch my YouTube channel. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good answer. Uh, good answer. Um, yeah, I mean, so uh, I would quote you know the the one of the story jordan peterson likes to tell like an archetype of the the dragon which is chasing you is way worse than the dragon you're facing so often people have doubts and sort of just ignore them for years and years and years and it just gradually eats away at them until there's nothing left inside and they just fold really really what you should do is if you have a doubt the doubts are the food for your faith so if you take your doubts to people who are firm in faith and can answer them and are just like will give open, honest answers to your satisfaction and and figure out how to word your questions really well and really come to a deeper understanding, then your faith should grow stronger. Uh, I guess that would be true of any religion. Uh, you got to be careful of people who don't like your questions and don't want to answer them. You want to find people that are, enjoy answering the questions. Uh, some people don't like a challenge. Um, and also when you, when you do that, you, you might have a doubt and you think this doubt is actually a really big deal. But as soon as you try to articulate, you realize, oh, actually, this is a really dumb idea. It doesn't even make sense. I can't even articulate it clearly. Uh, putting things to words and trying to express them to other people is, is really helpful in figuring out if it's a good idea or not and coming to clarity on it. Cool. Uh, the last last question, and then we have a bonus question. Um, but the last question, the last important question is, what, if anything, would change your mind? Like make me accept Jesus as the one true Lord and Savior? 
or make you question um, your current beliefs. Yeah. So if if I found members of another religion were having way higher quality of character, more detachment from the material world, displaying greater love of God, and I could you know apply myself to that, uh, uh, take all my questions to them, have all my uh, get satisfying answers, have all my doubts answered. And if I could also experience a similar transformation through applying the process they're applying, then maybe I would jump ship. However, I am currently getting all of that satisfaction from Krishna consciousness. What if, what if, you know how we got like new atheism, like that popped up? What if there's like new, new atheism and these atheists don't believe in God, but they, they are far more fulfilled than any other religion? Would you, would you you consider becoming an atheist? I mean, I just don't see that happening. So counterfactual that, that what what's the practice of these these atheists that makes them so happy? Because they, they walk around and say Dawkins and Hitchens over and over again. Dawkins. <laughs> <laughs> what what would it, what would it be? Um, Dennett Hitchens, Dennett Hitchens, Hitchens, yeah, Hitchens, yeah. And it's Dawkins, Harris, Hitchens, Harris. Dawkins. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then, no, no. I mean, that's just making a deity out of the new atheists, and then you've got another problem. But like, there, I like. There's just too much evidence that humans have a need that that we have a God-shaped hole in our heart. We have a need to venerate something, to have something higher than ourselves, have an experience of coming in contact with that higher thing and having that purify our heart and become attracted to that instead of being attracted to things of this world. It, it's, it's so clear all through human history, all through psychology, all through the world religions that this is an intrinsic part of human nature. I don't see how... It's kind of like asking, what would it take to convince me that the moon's brighter than the sun? It's like, well, I guess the moon would have to actually be brighter than the sun, right? <laughs> yeah, that's a good that's a good point. Um, okay, well, this is the final question, and I I really hope you have an answer to this because because a friend of mine asked this as a joke to me to ask you, and I was like, no, I'm going to actually ask it because it's a, a great question because as far as I know, food is an important part of the Hare Krishna way, right? So. The last question, bonus question: What is your favorite food, and can we have the recipe? <laughs> um, oh, this this might be like a disappointing answer. Like like wood fired pizza is one of my favorite foods. Uh, I, I like it when it's got a thin base. So yeah, we are known as the kitchen religion, um, but the spiritual aspect of the food is in the making sure it's things Krishna accepts. So you can't offer meat. It can't be. It's got to be mode of goodness, which means not too spicy, not too salty, not too sweet. Um, like middle middle ground kind of thing, balanced, healthy. Uh, but other than that, it doesn't matter if it's Mexican or Italian. Or It's really funny because the people who are really conservative and try to argue that it's got to be Indian food, a lot of the food they serve is actually Turkish because India yeah, is so influenced yeah. by the Muslims and Turks. So. That's interesting. <laughs> Um, yeah, so pizza, I like it. It's a thin base. You've got to cook the base ahead of time. Um, I've done it before, actually, like many years ago um, when I was quite young. I, we had a friend, we were selling pizzas on the side of the road out of a wood-fired pizza oven on, on a trailer, and we just had a, a, we just bought like a, a big tin of tomato paste, but that was the base. <laughs> Didn't even make so, You get away with oh, it wow. wood-fired and you put cheese on it. So what do you, what do you put on a vegetarian pizza? 
I'm a vegetarian, by the way. Um, I don't look. Oh. Like I, eat a lot, I eat a lot of cheese. I, I, I oh, eat all, all sorts of things. I mean, olives. The kids usually want only cheese. Um, it's nice to roast veggies to put on. Um, like I guess the the classic one would be zucchini. Zucchini. Capsicum. Yeah. Zucchini yeah. Right. Good. But you can if roast it. Hear- yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, interesting. So, give us your, give us your, like, if you had a top tier pizza yeah. for you right now, what, do, what are your toppings? Uh um, I don't know. You should not worry about the toppings. Usually, it's just about having the cheese melted and the base cooked. Uh, really? The toppings, so just, just cheese. Yeah, no, no. You'd have basil, capsicum. Uh, usually, we do it for, for a large gathering. We're just doing whatever's quick and easy. So, we usually have frozen corn. <laughs> Yeah, Capsicum, olives and fresh basil is really good awesome alright well that's great thank you so much Arjuna for jumping on the channel and um, really appreciate it and I'll send some links people can go check out your stuff and yeah thanks for jumping on cool thank you